Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello. Thanks for joining me today. This is Murder Bucket, and I'm your host, Hannah. This episode might be a little upsetting to some people, so listener discretion is advised. On today's episode, I will be sharing the story of the murder of Sylvia Likens. Sylvia Marie Likens was born on January 3, 1949. She was born between two sets of fraternal twins to Lester Likens and Elizabeth Francis. Daniel and Diana were born two years before her, and Benny and Jenny were born one year after her. Her sister Jenny suffered from polio, which caused one of her legs to be weaker than the other one. It is said that Lester and Elizabeth's marriage was not stable. They moved frequently and often sold candy, beer, and soda at carnival stands throughout Indiana in the summer. In her teenage years, Sylvia occasionally earned spending money like most of us did by babysitting, running errands, or performing ironing chores for friends and neighbors. She would often give her mother part of her earnings. She was described as friendly, confident, and lively. She had long, wavy, light brown hair and was known as Cookie to her friends. Due to having lost her front teeth in a collision with one of her brothers, she often kept her mouth closed when smiling. She was very protective of her younger sister, Jenny. They would often go to a local skating rink where Jenny would fasten a single roller skate to her strong foot and Sylvia would lead her by her hand around the rink. Gertrude Van Fossen was born on September 19th of 1928 in Indianapolis to Molly Myrtle and Hugh Marcus Van Fossen Sr. She was the third child out of six children. In October of 1939, her father died at the age of 50 from a sudden heart attack, and Gertrude witnessed his death. Six years later, she dropped out of school at the age of 16 and married John Benazuski, who was 18. She had four children with him. John had a volatile temper and would occasionally beat her. The two remained together for 10 years until they divorced. Then she married Edward Guthrie, but that only lasted for three months. Shortly after that divorce, she remarried her first husband, John, and bore him two more children. They divorced for a second time in 1963. She then started to date Dennis Wright, who also physically abused her. She had one child with him. Shortly after their son was born, he abandoned her. By 1965, Gertrude was living alone with her seven children. Paula, who was 17, Stephanie, who was 15, John Jr., who was 12, Marie, who was 11, Shirley, who was 10, James, who was 8, and Dennis, who was 1. She was described as a haggard, underweight asthmatic. She was also a chain smoker who was suffering from depression. She primarily relied on financial support from her children. She did perform odd jobs for neighbors such as sewing or cleaning to earn money. On July 3rd of 1969, Sylvia's mother was arrested for shoplifting 
and her father arranged for his daughters, Jenny and Sylvia, to board with Gertrude. Two of Gertrude's daughters were new acquaintances of the girls. Gertrude did assure Lester that she would take care of his daughters until his return. During the initial weeks in which Sylvia and Jenny resided at the Gertrude's home, the sisters were subjected to very little discipline or abuse. Although Lester had agreed to pay Gertrude $20 a week in exchange for the care of his daughters, the payments gradually failed to arrive on the prearranged dates. In response to the late payments, Gertrude began venting her frustration on the sisters by beating their bare butts with various objects. On one occasion, both girls were beaten 15 times on the back with a paddle after Paula had accused the sisters of eating too much food at a church supper the children had attended. By mid-August of 1965, Gertrude had begun to focus her abuse exclusively on Sylvia, with her primary motivation likely being jealousy of her appearance and potential in life. The initial abuse included subjecting Sylvia to beatings and being refused sufficient food, which led to her eating leftovers or spoiled food out of the trash can. She was once accused of stealing candy she had already purchased. Sylvia was subjected to humiliation when she claimed to have a boyfriend in Long Beach, whom she had met in the spring of 1965 when her family lived in California. In response to hearing this, Gertrude asked if she had ever done anything with the boy, to which Likens, unsure of her meaning, replied, I guess, and offered that she had gone skating with the boys there, and once went to a park on the beach with them and Jenny. Continuing the conversation with Stephanie, Sylvia mentioned that she had once laid under the covers with her boyfriend. Upon hearing this, Gertrude asked, Why did you do that, Sylvia? She replied, I don't know. Gertrude returned to the subject and told her, You're certainly getting big in the stomach, Sylvia. It looks like you're going to have a baby. Sylvia thought Gertrude was kidding with her and said, Yeah, it sure is getting big. I'm just going to have to go on a diet. However, Gertrude then informed her and the other girls in the house that whenever they did something with a boy, they would be sure to have a baby. She then kicked Sylvia in the genitals. Paula herself, overweight, three months pregnant, and also jealous of her physical appearance, then participated in attacking Sylvia, knocking her off her chair onto the kitchen floor and shouting, You aren't fit to sit in a chair. On another occasion, as the family ate supper, Gertrude, Paula, and a neighborhood boy named Randy Gordon Leper force-fed Sylvia a hot dog overloaded with condiments, including mustard, ketchup, and spices. She vomited as a result and was later forced to consume what she had regurgitated. In what would be Sylvia's only act of retaliation, she spread a rumor at school that Stephanie and Paula were prostitutes. She did this because she was upset with the children, singling her out for similar accusations. A boy at school told Stephanie that Sylvia had started the rumor. When she returned home, Stephanie questioned Sylvia about it, and she admitted to starting it. Stephanie punched her in response. When Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, heard about the rumor, he slapped Sylvia and banged her head against a wall and flipped her backwards onto the floor. Several of Coy's classmates visited Gertrude's home to both physically and verbally torment Sylvia, often collaborating with the other children and Gertrude herself. Gertrude actively encouraged the beatings. She often used her as a practice dummy in her judo sessions, lacerating her body, burning her skin with cigarettes, and severely injuring her genitals. 
Sylvia was forced at one point to strip naked in the living room and insert an empty Coke bottle into her private area as entertainment for Gertrude and the neighbor kids. Gertrude said that it was to prove to Jenny what kind of girl she was. Gertrude eventually prohibited Sylvia from attending school after she confessed to stealing a gym suit because she refused to buy her clothes. For this act of theft, she was whipped with a three-inch wide police belt. She repeatedly kicked her in the genitals, but Stephanie rallied to her defense, shouting that she didn't do anything. Gertrude then burned her fingertips with matches before whipping her even more. A few days later, Gertrude repeatedly whipped Jenny with the same police belt after she reportedly stole a single tennis shoe from the school to wear on her strong foot. The sisters were fearful of telling their family members or adults at their school of the increasing abuse and neglect that they were enduring. They were afraid that doing so would only make the matters worse. Jenny particularly struggled with the urge to notify family members as she was threatened that she would be abused and tortured to the same degree as her sister if she did. She was also subjected to bullying by some of the girls in the neighborhood. Lester and Elizabeth would occasionally return to Indianapolis to visit their daughters whenever their travel schedule afforded them the opportunity. The last time that they visited was in late August. During this visit, neither of the girls exhibited any signs of distress about mistreatment to their parents, likely because they were in the presence of Gertrude and her children. But as soon as Lester and Elizabeth left, Gertrude turned to face them and stated, what are you going to do now, now that they're gone? In September, the girls encountered their older sister, Diana, at a local park and informed her of the abuse that they were enduring at the hands of their caregiver. Initially, Diana believed her sisters must be exaggerating their claims. Several weeks prior to this, the girls, along with Marie, saw Diana at the same park. Sylvia was given a sandwich to eat when she mentioned that she was hungry. Marie told her family this, and in response, Gertrude accused Sylvia in engaging in gluttony. She was choked and bludgeoned by Paula and Gertrude. They then subjected her to a scalding bath to cleanse her of her sins. Her head was repeatedly banged against the bath to revive her when she fainted. The father of a neighborhood boy anonymously reported to the school that a girl with open sores across her body was living in the household. A school nurse visited the home because Sylvia had not been in several days. Upon arrival, Gertrude claimed that she had run away from the home previous week and was unaware of her whereabouts adding that she was out of control and that her open sores were a result of her refusal to maintain decent personal hygiene. She further claimed that she was a bad influence to her children and her sister. The school made no further investigations in relations to their welfare. Immediate neighbors of the Banaszewski family were a couple named Raymond and Phyllis Vermillion. Both viewed Gertrude as an ideal caregiver for the sisters and had visited on two occasions when the sisters were under her care. On both occasions, the Vermillions witnessed Paula physically abuse the sisters. They noticed that they had black eyes, appeared meek, and somewhat zombified. But they never reported the mistreatment to the authorities. In October, Diana discovered the location of where her sisters resided, and visited the property to initiate regular contact. Gertrude refused her entrance to the house, stating that she had received permission from their parents not to allow her to see the girls. She then ordered Diana to leave. A few weeks later, Diana encountered Jenny and asked about Sylvia's welfare. 
Ginny told her, I can't tell you or I'll get in trouble. Sylvia became incontinent due to the increased frequency and brutality of the torture. She was denied access to the bathroom and was forced to wet herself. Gertrude would throw Sylvia into the basement and tie her up as a punishment for her incontinence. She was often naked, rarely fed, and deprived of water. Gertrude would tell the children that she was the recipient of insults in the hopes that it would anger them and make them attack her. Neighborhood kids were occasionally charged five cents to see the display of Sylvia's body and to humiliate, beat, scald, burn, and mutilate her. She would often be restrained and placed in scalding bathtubs while salt was rubbed in her wounds. In order to muffle her screams, a cloth gag would be placed in her mouth. Gertrude and John Jr. rubbed urine and feces from the youngest son's diaper in Sylvia's mouth before giving her a cup half filled with water and stating that that was all the water that she was going to receive for the remainder of the day. John Jr. once gave Sylvia a bowl of soup and told her to eat it with her fingers, but he then quickly took it away. Gertrude eventually allowed her to sleep upstairs on the condition that she learned not to wet herself. The following morning, it was discovered that she had in fact wet the bed. As a punishment, she was forced to insert an empty Coke bottle into her private area in the presence of the other children. She was then forced to go to the basement. Shortly after, she was ordered to return to the kitchen and asked to strip naked again. Gertrude then began to carve the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, onto Sylvia's stomach with a heated needle. Gertrude was unable to finish the branding and instructed one of the neighborhood kids to finish. She was then led back into the basement where the neighborhood kid attempted to burn the letter S beneath her breast. The attempt failed and the branding turned into a three. She was later taunted by Gertrude that she would never be able to marry due to the words that were carved on her stomach. She was later forced to display the carvings to the neighborhood kids and Gertrude claimed she had received the inscription at a sex party. Sylvia confided in her sister that she knew she was going to die and knew Jenny didn't want her to. The following day, Gertrude woke Sylvia and forced her to write a letter which was intended to mislead her parents into believing their daughter had run away. The content of the letter was meant to frame a group of anonymous local boys for extensively abusing and mutilating her after she initially agreed to engage in sexual relations. After finishing, she was tied to the stair railing in the basement and offered crackers to eat, to which she refused. The crackers were then forced into her mouth before Gertrude and John Jr. beat her. On October 25th, Sylvia attempted to escape the basement after she overheard the plan to abandon her in the woods to die. She tried to flee to the front door, but due to her extensive injuries, Gertrude caught her. She was then given a piece of dry toast, but due to her extreme state of dehydration, she was unable to eat it. It was forced into her mouth while being struck repeatedly in the face with a curtain rod. Coy Hubbard took the curtain rod and struck her one last time, rendering her unconscious. She was then dragged into the basement. Later that evening, Sylvia desperately attempted to alert neighbors by screaming for help and hitting the walls. One neighbor later informed the police that she did in fact hear the desperate screams, but that they suddenly ceased and she decided not to file a police report. By the morning of October 26th, Sylvia was unable to speak intelligibly or move her limbs. 
She was moved to the kitchen and propped up against the wall. Gertrude attempted to feed her a donut and a glass of milk, but because she was unable to hold the glass, she was thrown to the floor and returned to the basement. She became delirious and started to repeatedly moan and mumble. Paula began to verbally threaten her to stand up or she would inflict a long jump on her. Gertrude then ordered Sylvia to clean herself after she defecated. Sylvia unsuccessfully attempted to bite into a rotten pear she was given, stating that she could feel the looseness of her teeth. In an attempt to wash Sylvia, John Jr. sprayed her with a garden hose that was brought into the house. She desperately attempted to exit the basement but collapsed before she could reach the stairs. To punish her for this, Gertrude stomped on her head. Stephanie decided to give Sylvia a bath, but she collapsed and stopped breathing before she was carried out of the basement. When she realized Sylvia was not breathing, she attempted mouth-to-mouth while Gertrude shouted that she was faking her death. Shortly after 5.30 p.m. that evening, a neighborhood boy, Richard Hobbs, entered the home and immediately proceeded toward the basement. He slipped on the wet stairs and fell heavily to the floor to be confronted with the sight of Stephanie crying and cuddling Sylvia's emaciated and lacerated body. Gertrude initially accused Sylvia of faking her own death, striking her body with a book and shouting faker to try and rouse her. She then instructed Richard to call the police from a nearby payphone. When police arrived, she led them to Sylvia's body before handing them the letter that she forced her to write and claimed that she had been trying to doctor the child for an hour prior to her death. She added that she ran away from home with several teenage boys before returning that afternoon, bare-breasted and clutching the note. While holding a Bible, Paula stated to all present in the household that Sylvia's death was meant to happen then calmly looked at Jenny and stated, if you want to live with us, we'll treat you like our own sister. Initially, Gertrude denied any involvement in Sylvia's death, although by October 27th, she confessed to having known the kids who had physically and emotionally abused her, stating that Paula did most of the damage and Coy did a lot of the beating. She further admitted to having forced her to sleep in the basement because she wet the bed. Lacking any remorse, Paula signed a statement admitting to beating her, breaking her wrist after punching her in the jaw, and inflicting other acts of brutality. John Jr. admitted to having spanked Sylvia on one occasion and burning her with matches several times at his mother's request. Five other neighborhood children were arrested on October 29th. All were charged with causing injury to a person and each were released into custody of their parents under subpoena to appear as witnesses of the upcoming trial. Her autopsy revealed that she had suffered in excess of 150 separate wounds across her body in addition to being extremely emaciated at the time of her death. Her injuries included burns, severe bruising, and extensive muscle and nerve damage. Her vaginal cavity was almost swollen shut, although on further examination, it was determined that her hymen was still intact, discrediting Gertrude's assertion that she was three months pregnant and a prostitute. Her fingernails were broken backwards, and most of the external layers of her skin had peeled or receded. The official cause of death was listed by coroner Dr. Arthur Keeble as subdural hematoma due to her receiving a severe blow to the right temple. Rigor mortis had fully developed at the time of her discovery of her body, indicating Sylvia was most likely deceased for up to eight hours before she was found. 
although Dr. Keeble did note she had been bathed after she died, which might have sped up the onset of rigor mortis. The funeral services for Sylvia were conducted at the Russell and Hitch Funeral Home in Lebanon on the afternoon of October 29th. Reverend Lewis Gibson was the officiant. More than 100 people were in attendance. Sylvia's casket remained open throughout the ceremony with a portrait of her taken prior to 1965 adorning her coffin. In his eulogy, Reverend Gibson stated, We all have our time of passing, but we won't suffer like our little sister suffered during the last days of her life. He then walked slowly toward her casket, closing it, and said, She has gone to eternity. Sylvia's casket was placed by pallbearers in a hearse and driven to Oak Hill Cemetery to be interred. Her headstone is inscribed with the words, Our Darling Daughter. And on that note, I will end today's episode. Picking back up next week with the indictments, trial, convictions, Gertrude's parole, and life after this brutal murder of an innocent young girl. Thank you for listening to Murder Bucket, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode.